0: All right. Well, good morning. How's everyone doing? Yeah. Awesome. Good. Yeah. I didn't expect a response, but yeah, that's awesome. It's kind of hard to engage this many people. So, hey, glad you guys are here. My name is Seth. If we haven't gotten a chance to meet, I'm one of the pastors here, i just add my welcome to the welcomes you've already received. Uh, This is a great church filled with great people, and and if there's any way that I can assist you in getting connected and and building relationships, I would love to do that. So uh, welcome to all you guys joining online as well. I wish there's a way that you could like high-five, you know, through the internet. I don't think that's real. So yeah, I'm just dreaming here, which actually speaking of dreaming, uh, this morning is actually going to be a little bit different. We're going to dream a little bit uh, together. Uh, and so it might feel a little bit different. Uh, we're still going to be deeply in a text. We're going to be in the book of Ezra, uh, which is fitting for us because we're coming out of uh, Jeremiah. We've got two weeks left in this For This City uh, series. And uh, last week we finished with fe- uh, chapter 52 uh, of Jeremiah, uh, which is really uh, a long and hard and challenging book for a lot of different reasons. And uh, one of the things that we said. Uh, is if you're looking for a happy ending, don't read Jeremiah, right? Because it doesn't end happy. Uh, but it ends very hopeful. And so there is this intrinsically powerful question for each of us, like would we rather be at any given time in our life? uh, Would we rather be happy or would we rather be hopeful? Uh, And the the reality is is that life sometimes doesn't give us the opportunity for happiness. And so we need to find Jesus in in the midst of what we're going through and really prepare ourselves for what the future holds. And so uh, as we looked at that, we kind of ended with this idea of what's next, right? Because even though Jeremiah, it ends not happy, it ends with this hopeful moment because this guy named Jehoiachin, who's a, this, kind of this bad, evil king, is released from prison, uh, and that's significant because it leads ultimately to the to the line of David, who would be the, the line that Jesus eventually comes from. So all that Jesus accomplished, you know, uh, is in part because, because God allowed Jehoiachin to be released from prison. And so God obviously picks up the story after Jeremiah 52, but as we kind of put ourselves back into that time, because the people go into exile, and so there's prophecy and prophets around that. Um, But we're gonna be looking at the book of Ezra this morning as they kind of come back from the exile, and we're gonna see the way that God actually is turning this story kind of right side back up, okay? If that makes sense. And so this morning, though, as we jump into this allowing yourself to dream, we're gonna, you know, kind of build off of that idea of, like, what's next? Because as a church, we find ourselves in a very similar situation, right? We're coming out of the pandemic. There's lots of things that have changed and life just feels different and church, all those things, right? And so there's this question of like, what's next, and so, what I want to do is kind of spark this, this curiosity or spark your imagination around the question, what if? Like, what is it that God really wants to do? And so, we're going to kind of look at this question of what if? Now, for me, this is tremendously exciting because I love this type of stuff. I love, like, walking into a room and I go, oh, what could it be, you know? Um, that's kind of how I'm wired. And so, I get to think and picture. Uh, but for some of you, that may, not be, um, that may not get you as excited in the same way as it gets me, and I totally get that. I understand that. Um, and here's why. Because on Friday, um, my wife and daughter and I uh, set out, we were going to go to Costco, which I, anytime my wife says she's going to Costco, I'm like, I'm in, <laughs> you know, because there's, there's samples and just fun things to look at and peruse, right? It's just a fun place to be. Um, and so, uh, but on the way, we were going to stop at two garage sales, which turned into like 10, you know, because it's like, oh, that one wasn't on the map. Just turn here. Just stop here. It's fine. You know, and so then you have this whole discussion in the car. And she's like, you know, like I pull up to the side, and she's like, no, no, keep driving, so I can tell if I should stop or not. And I'm like, sweetheart, this is not how it works. You you don't have like Superman vision, okay? You can't see every single item. She's like, but I can get a glimpse of it. And I'm like, what? so like our car's like jerking back and forth, like stopping and going, as we're checking out these garage sales, right? Um, and uh, and so for her, she finds great enjoyment in this. That gets her really excited. I was excited about Costco, okay, and, and the samples. And so, as she, you know, she'd find a spot to stop, and then she would go in and check this place out and, and all the stuff that's there. And I'd be like, cool, I'm gonna watch, you know, Cubs highlights in the car. Um, which, by the way, the Cubs are terrible this year, so there's not very many highlights. It's pretty depressing, um, and uh, and so. But here's the here's the reality: is that for me, though, even though the idea of Groucho hunt hunting doesn't get me super excited, there is a piece of me um, deep down that wants it to be exciting. Because every once in a while I watch this guy on YouTube, and he goes and he finds like all these cool things that he'll find at a garage sale, and then what he does is he resells it. And so there's a piece of me that, as I go to these garage sales, I'm like, but what if? What if it's the one garage sale where somebody's selling uh, for one dollar a signed basketball, like by Michael Jordan? You know, like what if? Like what are the chances? Like slim to none right? Slim to none. But what if? Right? What if? And so this morning, even if the idea of dreaming about what God wants to do for the future is not what really gets you excited, my hope is is that we can at least capture for all of us this small glimpse of this question, what if? Like what is it that God wants to do coming out of this season, right? Um, so, if you've got a Bible, um, hop over uh, to the book uh, of Ezra. Uh, this is where we're going to be this morning. Kind of, kind of look briefly through uh, this this book. And like I said, it's, this is as the time as the people are going to be returning uh, from the exile. So, lots going to change in this story. Okay, so here we start in chapter one, verse one. Uh, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, now if you remember the story in Jeremiah, that's not the same king because that was Nebuchadnezzar, that was Babylon. Babylon actually eventually gets destroyed. That's all the prophecy of God who said is that I'm actually going to punish Babylon. I'm going to bring a, uh, a continent or a nation that's even bigger and better than you, and I'm going to take care of them, basically. And uh, and so the, P, the the Medes and the Persians kind of rise to power, and there's this guy named Cyrus who's now kind of in charge, right? And it says, uh, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, so all the stories are connected, right? That the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia. If you have your own Bible, circle, highlight, um, underline the word stir, because we are gonna come back to that word uh, a lot, okay? And the word stir in Hebrew means to awaken. It's like you're coming out of a sleep, right? It's to waken, it's to to rouse, it's to stir people up uh, into action. And this is interesting because God is working in the heart. He's stirring in the heart of someone who is totally disconnected from Israel, Do you see this? Like, this is not a guy who has a personal relationship with Yahweh, right? And yet God is stirring. He's waking up Cyrus. So much so, right? It says that he made a proclamation throughout all of his kingdom, and he put it into writing. He's like, this is something that God has given me, and I want to tell everybody, okay? And here's what it goes. Verse 2. It says, thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me... All the kingdoms of the earth. That's a lot, right? Pretty big nation. He's given me all the kings of the earth. So there's this acknowledgement that God is actually the one who's done this, too, right? He's the one who's given me all the kings of the earth, and he has charged me. To build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. This is very similar. It feels a lot like Solomon in the Old Testament, right? As God stirs in him and, and he gives him this vision to build the temple. And here it's Cyrus, again, totally disconnected from Israel. And he says, This is what God has asked me. To do, right? And then, here's he goes on, he says, "Whoever is among you of all his people, may his God be with him, and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and his God be with him. Uh, excuse me, and rebuild the house of the Lord. The God of Israel, He is the God who is in Jerusalem." Okay, Like, look at, I mean, just stop for a second and just remember, like, how this story uh, is is turning. Like, there's this massive reversal, right? Because in Jeremiah 52, what happens is this guy named Jeconiah, right, is that this guy, he's totally unworthy of of redemption, right? He's a bad king. He's strayed from God. He led Israel astray, and he's blah, 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 right? So he's this bad guy. And yet God, in that moment, it says that he allows him, it says that he is gracious And so it becomes this Old Testament picture of a New Testament reality that God would show favor on people who do not deserve redemption and yet graciously free them right? This is how the story kind of ends, with this glimmer of hope that God is doing something. And here we find ourselves all the way like 70 years later, because the time of the exile is long, right? And so here all of a sudden we've bypassed all of this time and all of the pain, the turmoil, the struggle, the doubts, the questions, everything that the exile includes, right? All of the idolatry. God has been working in the hearts of his people for a long time. And he gets to a point when he says, my work is complete or at least I'm ready to turn the story right, by, like right back to where it started. And so he stirs in Cyrus. And that's what the, that's what the, the bottom line in the midst of what we're going to find throughout this entire passage is that the very bottom line is that in order for the story to go the way that God wants it to, he has to stir in the hearts of the people. And he's stirring. He's awakening. And he's, he's stirring people up to action, right? So he's starting to turn this story around. And he's going to send these people home. They're going to return home. But it's not just that Cyrus um, is, is, you know, has this personal vision kind of a thing from the Lord and says, this is up to me. He actually invites, or really rather commands, the entire group of people to support this journey, right? Look in verse 4. He says, and let each survivor... In whatever place he sojourns, be assisted by the men of his place with silver and gold, with goods and with beasts, besides free will offerings for the house of God that is in Jerusalem. And so what happens here in this moment, right, is that Cyrus mandates and kind of dictates: this is what I want everybody to do. I want you to give, right, for the rebuilding of the temple. And on top of that, there are people who are offering these freewill things. They're like, we are in invested in this rebuilding, and so we want to give you what you need to make this happen, right? And this is the way, I mean, just stop and pause and think, because remember how much is really going on here, right? Think about how long and painful, how hard this story has been for a long time, and God is really starting to turn it around, and so God is going to continue to stir in the hearts of the people. Look at verse 5. It says, then rose up the heads of the fathers, houses of Judah and Benjamin and the priests and the Levites and everyone whose spirit God had stirred, right? Everybody that he had awakened, he had roused to action to go up and rebuild the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem, right? So he's continuing to stir in people's hearts. That's the bottom line. But here's what I want you to take note of is that not everybody leaves, Not everybody leaves Babylon. Not everybody's leaving with. And and the text doesn't tell us why. And so we want to be careful to not, like, overindulge in the reasons why. But there are some possibilities, as you think. Maybe there's the positive side. There's this Jeremiah 29. If you remember back then, you know, it said, like, I want you to to take root in this city and to plant yourselves for the welfare of this city and seek its welfare. So maybe people are like, gosh, this is what God has really called me to do, and my calling hasn't finished Maybe there's like negative, or maybe there's sin in the midst of this. Maybe people like look at this and go, Gosh, like I'm out. That's way too hard. That's way too challenging. That's not what I want to do. I'm not in on that. And so I'm going to stay put. Maybe it's that. Maybe it's something as simple as the fact that God didn't stir in their hearts. And so of like, you know what, I guess I'll just stay. It's my choice, and so I'll just stay. We don't know what happens, right? But the bottom line is that God is stirring. He has to stir in people's hearts. He's stirring people up. He's wakening them up, right? And, he, and he's sending uh, a, a people, right? Um, and here's what's neat, is that these people, obviously, because Cyrus mandates this, this you know, connection to this group returning to, to Israel, he says, I want you to give towards it, but the reality is is that they still do it, right? Um, And it says in verse six, it says, and all who were about them, Aided them with vessels of silver, with gold, with goods, and with beasts, and with costly blah 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 blah. All besides besides all that was freely offered. So was, again, here's what God or here's what Cyrus has commanded us to give. And here's everything else that we want to give. There's this eagerness that we are all in on this rebuilding. And here's what's super interesting: the the idea of like it just says those who were about them. It just means those who were around them. Now we could. As you look at that, it's 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 likely that the author intended that he's talking about other Jews who are in the exile with them, right? Because that would make sense. Um, that if you are one of their people, that uh, one of the Israelites, that you would give with generosity so that they go back and rebuild the temple. But it is possible, it is possible that those around him means all of the people under Cyrus's command right? And if that's true, which we don't know, but if it's true, either way, I want you to think about how much favor God is throwing at them. He's sending them back with great, great favor, right? With Cyrus and everything that he is going to give them, right? And it's the bottom line is that God is waking people up, right? And here's what happens, right? In verse 7, it says Cyrus The king also, so in addition to this, right, it says the Cyrus the king also brought out the vessels of the house of the Lord that Nebuchadnezzar had carried away from Jerusalem and placed in the house of his God. So everything that Nebuchadnezzar had taken from Jerusalem when they sacked it in 587 BC was brought to Babylon. Once Babylon is captured, it goes where? It goes to the Persians and to the Medes. And it's just sitting in this, this treasure space. And he's like, we don't need this take it with you. So everything that was taken is now returned, and it goes back to Israel. This is incredible. If you're one of these people, wouldn't you be excited? We've got we to go home. We finally get to go home. This is this beautiful, beautiful picture. But I just again, push pause on the story and stop and remember how long and how painful. 52 chapters, 40 years of Jeremiah preaching about idolatry, all right, and, and, and injustice, and then to go into an exile and all of that and the length of that, right? And God doesn't work in the time periods that we would like him to work right we get impatient with the smallest of things and here you have these years that go by but all of a sudden we remember that God is faithful to his promises and what does he do he begins to turn the story back right side up and he's going to send these people home he's going to re- allow them to return and in so doing the mandate is that they would rebuild the temple right okay so come back over here <clears throat> so, if you remember, or if you've seen me do this before, just drawing, drawing out kind of the old temple walls, you know, of... Of the temple. So these the eastern wall would have been part of the exterior wall, and so the, the wall would have come over here as well, and would have come over here as well. And the city is kind of up in here. But if you remember when they're sacked, right, all of this stuff would have been torn down because that's part of what they did. They 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 burned the temple and they break down all of the walls. And so all of this is in ruins, the temple especially. And so as these people return, the mandate is that they would rebuild the what? The temple. What's the first thing that they rebuild? Not the temple. They build the altar. Right? And it says that they placed it in the exact place of where it was before. Right? And there's this question, right? It begs the question, why? Why? If the mandate was to build the temple first, why build the altar? Right? And, and again, the text doesn't tell us, but you wonder if it's because these group of people are like, gosh, we need a way to deal with the sins in our hearts. And we know that God says, like, he's not ultimately concerned about this right now because he says to rebuild the temple, but, but we're going to build the altar because we want to deal with our sins and we want to do that, right? And so there's good rhythms that they're entering into, but it's this reminder for us as people how oftentimes God says, here's what I want you to do, and we kind of reverse the order. Right? He says, here's what I'd like you to do. And we're like, ah, but what about one, two, three, four? Right? And we put these other things in front of it. And these can be really good things. So it's, this is not a bad thing, but it's not in the right order. And so when God says to build the temple, they build the altar. They're dealing with their sins. They also start doing the festivals. So the good news is that they're entering into incredibly positive rhythms, right? They are entering into positive rhythms. Now, if there's anybody, like, like in terms of the, the recent history of humanity, who can understand, right, um, how sympathetic we are to those types of people, it would be us. Because of coming out of a pandemic, coming out of that life, that world, when everything was thrown into chaos, and it's like COVID is a swear word now, You know, it's like, I don't even want to remember it. I don't even want to talk about it, right? And yet, uh, the reality is, is that as we come out of that, we sympathize with these people because we're like, God, we we just want to rebuild our life. We just want to get back into normal rhythms. We want to rebuild some of those things that we had lost before. We go, gosh, we, we get that. We totally get that. We want to focus on our lives a bit. But the author here, actually, as they are building the altar in chapter 3, as they're building this altar, he makes this, this contrast. As he talks about the altar, he talks about the festivals, and then he says this, but the foundation of the temple was not yet laid. And it was this reminder that the mission was to build the temple, right? And so for for us in many ways, just like the Israelites, for us in many ways, what we have to do is that we have to remind ourselves, right, um, that we have to shift back to this mission that God has given us, right? There's a mission that I believe that coming out of the pandemic that he wants the church to have. Right? And we'll talk about that in a little bit. So so what do they do? As that they're gonna start building the temple, but again, here's something that's unique in this in this story, is that not only have uh, the people in in Persia given to the people to rebuild the temple. Not only have their friends and family in Persia given, now they're here and they need to rebuild the temple and so they take up another offering and all of the people there begin to give and to give and to give so that they can get what they need to build or to rebuild the temple, okay? So let's find out what happens in chapter three, verse eight, as they're gonna start the temple here. So start the building. It says, now in the second year after they're coming to the house of God at Jerusalem, which by the way, gives you a little bit of a time frame, doesn't it? Right, We're now in the second year and they're just starting to build the temple, right? Um, Zerubbabel, the son of Shiltiel, and Jeshua, the son of Josadak, made a beginning, and together with the rest of their kinsmen, the priests and the Levites, and all who had come with them to Jerusalem from captivity. So, um, how many people are involved in this project? Everybody, right? Every single person says, I'm in and I'm going to rebuild this temple. Right? The priests and the Levites, they're the ones kind of overseeing some of the duties. But everyone is involved in this process, this, this mission, this vision that God has given them, right? Uh, and here's Look at verse 10, okay? Um, it says, And the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord the priests in their vestments came forward with trumpets and the levites and the sons of asaph you might remember him from the psalms with cymbals to praise the lord according to the directions of david king of israel and they sang responsively look at this this is praise and this worship giving thanks to the lord why for he is good for his steadfast love endures forever towards israel Guys, we've passed so many years, but you just skip back to the book of Jeremiah, and and you're going to find a very different message, (laughs) right? All of a sudden, here we are, and people's attitudes and minds and hearts are ready. Like, gosh, God, you're so good. Your love endures forever. And back in Jeremiah, it's like, gosh, God, where's your love? Where are you? Where's Waldo? You know, like, we can't find you. And yet, here, like all of a sudden, like we have this renewed perspective. And it says, All the people shouted with a great joy when they praised the Lord, because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. Right? Isn't that a beautiful beautiful picture. It's been completely torn down. It's in ruins. And to get back and to see the foundation go in, all of a sudden we get really, really excited. And there's this praise. There's this worship, right? But there's something else that happens in this story. Look at verse 12. It says, but many... Many of the priests and Levites and heads of fathers' houses, old men who had seen the first house, wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundation of this house being laid. Though many shouted aloud for joy so that the people could not distinguish the sound of the joyful shout from the sound of people's weeping. For the people shouted with a great shout, and the sound was heard far away. Guys, here's here's what here's what happens. Okay, you come over here. All right, so they build the altar and then they lay the foundation of the temple. And there's a group of people who are really, really excited about that. Right, the future uh, is is wide open. God, what are you going to do? All right, but there's also people um, who remember. that the foundation of the temple used to be a lot bigger. And so that this one is minimized. It's smaller, right? And so that you get this, this mixed... This mixed emotive moment as people are celebrating and people are weeping and it's this, this combined and it's so hard to tell the difference between the two that it just turns into this great loud noise that everybody can hear. And as I think about this in our lives, there's this unique application uh, in this, because if you you know, if if you've kind of just been watching the national church, right, is that we, as a group of people, are excited, really excited to be back, right? You remember those moments when, like, in the midst of the pandemic, and you're like, gosh, when will this end? Now it has ended, and people are just happy, or we're excited to be back, and yet there's this combined sadness because the church is smaller than what it once was. In fact, what they say is that the, the national church should expect that, that the attendance um, of churches be, will be about 80% of what they were pre-COVID for the next two years. And so there's this rejoicing to be back, but there's also this sadness, right? And here's what happens. And here's what happened, I think, probably in this story, right, is that you come over here, and then when we see, and gosh, how many times do we do this in life? We see the foundation of something, and we automatically make assumptions about what the finished product will look like and what it will bring. Because for many, they saw a diminished state, right? And they thought, gosh, God's worship is gonna be minimized, right? The glory is minimized, the effect of our worship is gonna be minimized, right? And we how oftentimes do we do this in life? We all do this in life and in different ways. But here's my question to you: How many times did Jesus step foot in this old temple? Zero. Jesus' ministry was right here. In fact, the ministry of Jesus is primarily, it's only from a, from a temple standpoint in the Second Temple Judaism. And if you remember, right, the ministry and the work that Jesus did was far greater than any of the glory that was ever attributed to the Old Temple. right? Because if you remember, in this, in this area, there's the holy place and there's the most holy place and in between the two, there's this curtain. And at the moment of Jesus' death, what happens is that curtain is torn in two. And so no longer do you have to be presented like, and, and, and like, uh, mediated for this. Every single person for the history of humanity now has direct access to God. And you go, that is tremendous news for the glory of the temple because the temple is no longer even needed. We are his temple and then what happens here in this moment as Jesus then meets with his disciples, spreads into this disciple-making movement that starts here, and if you read the book of Acts, it starts here, it goes there, it goes here, it goes there, it goes there, it goes there. and eventually it goes everywhere, and it keeps going everywhere until the end of the story. And it's just incredible. You go, the glory that God accomplished through Jesus and through his ministry out of that second temple is far greater than anything could have happened in the old temple, right? Here's my, here's my question Right? Here's my question What if what God wants to do post pandemic is greater than what we've been doing in this last season? What if the work that God wants to do post-pandemic is greater, far greater than everything we've done in the last season, right? Because God is ultimately moving. I really, really believe that. And when you look at this, like as you, as you even unpack this story and if you unpack our story, when God starts stirring in the hearts of people, when his will begins and wants to be accomplished in new and bigger ways, right, you're gonna meet opposition. And these people are not, like, they're not, um, they're not withstanding, right? Because what happens is that there's this group of people that come as they're rebuilding the temple, and they think, they're like, gosh, this is really cool. Can we be a part of it? And they say, basically, like, no, this is our temple. You can't, you you have no part in it. So, like, well, okay, well, if I can't be a part of it, then I'm going to write the letter to the king, So they write a letter to the king. The king finds out, and these people are like, hey, if you don't do anything about these people, they're going to become an enemy. Enemy, that sounds bad. That's a bad word to a king. And so what does he say? Stop production, no more temple, no more any of that. And so for a long period of time, it goes without production. There's no working on the temple because of this opposition, right? But then God starts stirring in new and powerful ways. If you flip over to the book of Haggai, right, it's kind of like we're jumping to chapter five in Ezra, but it's recorded here in Haggai one, as he shows up, as this prophet shows up onto the scene, Here's what it says. It says, In the second year of Darius the king, again, new king, so hard to track, right? So it was Cyrus, and now it's Darius. the king, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai, the prophet, to Zerubbabel, the son of Shiltiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Thus says the Lord of hosts, These people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Wasn't that the mission? Wasn't that the mandate? Verse three. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? You see, what happened is that in this time, is that in this time, these people... When there's no construction happening on the temple, they begin to build and work on their houses, so much so that they've got these cool, paneled roofs, which by the way, this is not what Old Testament houses look like, you know? Um, But they've got these cool paneled uh, houses and and whatnot, right? And, And don't get me wrong, everything that happens in the home, this is good. This is a sacred place for God, right? There's family, there's relationships, there's serving, there's all of that. But what this represents is not just the family, what it represents is lifestyle. Because over time, as the work on this is halted, this becomes the problem. And the lifestyle to rebuild our lives beforehand becomes more intoxicating than the mission of God. And so it's not that this is bad, but what God says is don't allow this to consume this. These are meant to work together in a way that brings unity into the kingdom of God. Your home and your lifestyle and the mission of God are two things that are symbiotic in in nature. But this can become an all-consuming thing if we allow it to. It can create this separation where we're focused on rebuilding our lives at the cost of what God is wanting to do and is doing in the world. And when we do that, that's when idolatry begins to spout out of this thing because the things of life are far more important than what God says. And God says this, and we're going to read this. This is what happens. He says, When you do that, When you put all of your energy into that, it's like it comes right back out the bottom. Okay, check this out. I think it's in verse six. Here's what it says. It says, you have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but never have enough. You drink, but never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. He says a life... That's focused on this apart from this is like a bag with holes. It will never end, it will never stop. And so we have to reshift back to the mission of God. And so, as the story unfolds, here's the deal at the bottom line is that God is stirring in the hearts of people. And this is how we end. What's our response? What's our response? Because by the way, eventually the temple is completed and it's this beautiful picture of how the people stay committed to it, right? They turn around and they find themselves back in this right relationship as they finish the mission that God has ultimately given them. And so we go, for us, what is our response? Because then the reality is, is that we don't know what God is doing, but I think he's laying the foundations for something great. God is laying the foundation for something. We don't know what he's building. And you remember that statistic, 80% is what they expect the church attendance to be for the next two years out of COVID, of pre-COVID numbers, right? What that shows is the people that were in the church. What that doesn't show is the people who are outside the church who will enter into the church for the very first time. Did you know That 80%, right now, 80% of the people who live in Fargo-Moorhead do not go to church. 80% pre-COVID numbers for the church, 80% of the people who don't go to church. What happens when those two things begin to overlap? Is God going to show up and do some pretty... Crazy, cool, amazing things. I hope so. Guys, we are either living in a time where there's going to be a renaissance and a revival in the church, which I believe is directly tied to whether we get on board with who God is and his mission in new and big ways and how he's doing it, and there could be this revival, this renaissance, or if we reject it, there's going to be this steep decline. And church will continue to become less relevant for people outside the church, right? Right? I believe, I really truly believe that there are great things ahead. I really do. And when we embark into this type of a season, we expect to find opposition because God is stirring. And, And as we think through this, go back to the garage sale for a moment because, you know, I know that not all of us are stirred or not just, not all of us just wrestle with vision and dreaming in the same way. But I just want you to think for a second, allow yourself to catch a glimmer of this. What if? That summer blast, our prayer has been 150 kids. What if we have more than that? And what if a bunch of them come to know Christ? That's incredible. Guys, what if, you know, like we've got this new and growing partnership with Ellen Hopkins, and we want to host a fall family fun night here on our campus in the fall. What if there's 200-some families that show up that we get to build relationship with and to invite them into our lives? What if? That's, that's incredible. What if this group that's meeting for men's breakfast continues to grow and continues to serve people inside and outside the church? What if people who for years who have been living in brokenness, in isolation, in frustration, who have never even heard the gospel before, begin to see people show up in their lives with the good news of Jesus? What if? I don't know. But what if, coming out of the pandemic, lots of things have shifted and they have changed. But here's my thought. What if we stopped painting a picture of everything that could go wrong and started painting a picture of everything that could go right? What if? What if we didn't make assumptions about what God was doing and we allowed ourselves to see that what God might want to do is bigger than anything he's done in the past? Guys, I can't tell you everything, but I know that God is stirring right now. I want to invite the worship team to come forward, and I want to give you just a couple of quick um, applications as we end. Right, And the first thing is this. Right, I want you to focus on that word, stirring. What might be God stirring in your heart? And I'd ask you to pray, right? Pray for God to stir in your heart, to stir in our hearts, and to stir in the, in the, in the hearts of people like Osiris who are totally disconnected from the church, who would say, gosh, we wanna partner with Salem. We wanna partner with the church to make something happen. We wanna see people come awake and alive, right? And stirred to action, pray that. The second one is this, is, it, is the idea of investing. Two times in this passage, we don't talk a lot about about money in in the church. We probably should talk about it more, right? But two times in this passage, it mentions people giving freely and generously to the church. Guys, no one gets excited about waking up and paying electricity bills. (laughs) I get it, right? But we we want to see lives changed. And here's what I believe, is that God is going to show up in a way where people's lives are changed. I think that's worth investing in. And the last one is this, pray for vision. Would you just pray and ask that God would give us a unique and specific vision that our body of people can be excited about together and and, and that people are stirred to see fulfilled? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, as we wrap up our time this morning, and as we move into this final song, as we, as we allow our hearts to express worship in a different way, we know that every time we open up your word, this is something that we cling to as people that we should never let go of because of how significant and important and true it is to every single aspect of life. But Lord, as we move into this, this last song, may our hearts express to you our gratitude like the people who when they saw the foundation laid, they gave thanks. And may we, may we together be stirred and awakened and brought to life to the ways that you would want us to work. Lord, we love you and your name we pray, amen.